listening to the Rugby Coaches Corner podcast with your host, Andy Plymer. Bringing you up-to-date coaching concepts from the world of rugby. Sharing ideas to make the game better. All right, welcome to episode number 100 of the Rugby Coaches Corner podcast. I'm your host, Andy Plymer, and joining me today is Wayne Smith. He's a Rugby World Cup winning coach. He's won Super Rugby titles with the Crusaders and the Chiefs. He's the current director of rugby with the Cabelco Steelers in Japan. He's influenced countless coaches worldwide, and it's an absolute pleasure to have him on the show. So welcome, Wayne. Thanks, Andy. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for thanks for joining. And uh, you know, I've got a good story to talk to mates at the pub with. Uh, I got your email address from coaching legend Pierre Villeperot. So uh, uh, that's a, wow. a good yarn. <laughs> yeah. What's um, so before we get going into the the coaching side of things, you've probably answered this one a bunch of times. Hundred words or less. Your your playing career, uh, both uh, club and uh, for for your country. What what, what did that look like? Uh, small, small town boy, um, mm-hmm. come from a little town in the Waikato called Potaru. played for Potaru High School, which back in those days, this is back in the 70s, early 70s, mm-hmm. um, was a stronghold of New Zealand rugby, you know, um, all those hinterland areas were, were where a lot of the players were coming from. Yeah. Um, so my dream coming out of high school was to play for Potaru Seniors. Uh, <laughs> I, went to Waikato, <laughs> I went to Waikato University and fulfilled my Dream. So I came back and played played for Pataru. Um, I had made some sort of um, Waikato junior teams, um, but the coach of the Waikato senior team um, had suggested that I was never going to be a first five as long as my bum pointed downwards. So, <laughs> and he was probably right at the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, I came from a small town and um, and didn't have a lot of sophisticated coaching techniques that that others had. Um, but it was my first coaching lesson, Andy, because um, he underestimated what I had inside me. Yeah, and awesome. That Isn't that great? I've, I've always forced myself not to do. Um, so after after university, I decided there was no future for me um, in the Waikato region. So I went down to Teachers College in Christchurch. I played for Belfast, mm-hmm. um, sort of a countryish type club down there. Um, made Canterbury for, through uh, my first year through a series of lucky events. Mm-hmm. Um, got got a break with Canterbury. Um, ended up playing an All Black trial the following year in my home ground in Hamilton. Yeah, uh, which was interesting. Going back there as an All Black trialist, um, made the All Blacks. So uh, played for Canterbury from '79 through till um, about '88, with some breaks in between going overseas. Um, played for the All Blacks. Had 35 games for the All Blacks and was captain of the um, All Black Sevens. So we played, I played in three tournaments in Hong Kong. Oh, wow, cool. That was uh, early days Sevens then too, right? So it wasn't yeah, wasn't days. a tour we know now. No, um, all the best players in the world just used to go there. I remember we, we won the final in 86 mm. against France and the French backline was Bizier, um Salah played first receiver. Um, I marked Blanco. He was at centre. Oh wow, and, that's great! Uh, Steve or Largescale were on the wings, and so yeah, the best players 
and the world played in those days are pretty exciting times. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. Um, and you know, just re- reflecting on your on your playing career, and you you mentioned one coaching lesson there uh, early on. What what was some of the you know, coaching's come a long way in in probably 20, 30 years. What were what were some of the coaching methodologies from your playing time that you know you feel would 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 stand the test of time and and be applicable today, knowing what we know? Well, the, the um, standard coaching methodology was analytical mm-hmm. in New Zealand. So you were taught, yeah, even as a little kid, you were taught how to meet the ball early, catch pass technique, um, where to put your hands thumbs up stuff I, I can still remember yeah um, I was really lucky when, when I went um, so I had really good coaches at high school had a um, guy Dave Merito who was um, New Zealand uh, a New Zealand Maori representative played midfield um, also for Waikato and, and the local club in Kotaru had a maths teacher who was outstanding spent a lot of time with me at lunch um, looking at things like my kicking um, yeah just 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 teaching small skills so mm. I, had a, I, I was really fortunate having a, a good background behind me I guess and uh, when I went to Canterbury so my first year playing for Belfast uh, we played a pre-season game against university and the coach of the university was a guy called Laurie O'Reilly who was one of the top family lawyers in New Zealand uh, and actually became a commissioner for children for New Zealand eventually right um, but he took an, for some interest, for, for some reason, he took an interest in me. And so he asked me to come around to his house on um, on the following Sunday. And so I went around to his place and his wife, Kay, opened the door and I went in and there he is standing in a white caftan. Ca- I come from a small <laughs> rural, rural town in New Zealand. I'd never seen, seen many of them. Never seen a man in a dress before. <laughs> uh, this is, he, he's different. Um <laughs> But he became an outstanding mentor for me. Mm. And um, he's the man probably that I've got most to thank um, for helping launch my career. Uh, he, whilst he wasn't employed by the union or anything like that, he used to run all the coaching camps in right. Canterbury. And there were a lot of them. And I, he brought out Pierre Vulpreur actually right. one year to a camp. He organised all this himself. Um, Jim Greenwood, whose books I, I had been reading yeah. on the game um he was brought out to a camp and myself and and the canterbury halfback at the time gary barker we were invited along to to um demonstrate some of the stuff for, for jim greenwood so like this was in 1979 1980 mm-hmm. um, so early in my playing career i was already being exposed to a lot of different coaching ideas and different coaching people yeah, yeah so laurie riley was a massive one um the captain of, of my Canterbury team in those early years was Alex Wiley, Grizz, Grizz Wiley, who, of course, became a famous Canterbury coach and then, then an all-black coach. Um, but he was captain, played number eight. And uh, it was the first time I'd really been um, captained by someone who ran the game strategically. Right. Um, to the extent that he would often stop the game and the referee would, would stop the game. <laughs> Well, Grizz spoke and he'd come out and he'd, he'd make the call for me. We had two calls, righto and lefto from, from the scrums. Yeah, <laughs> and so that works. He'd pull his head out of the scrum and I'd either get the righto call or the lefto call. But he and, he and um, Dougie Bruce, who I took over from as first five for Canterbury, they became Canterbury coaches during my career and um, they were both really important 
um, mentors for me, um, taught me a lot of, uh, strategically about the game, um, about how to learn um, from each play and what, you know, tactically the next move should be. So, yeah, they, they were they were critical influences for me. And latterly in my All Black career, I was lucky enough to have Brian Lahore, who was probably our greatest All Black captain, or certainly one of them, um, was in charge of a team in the late 60s that was unbeaten um, and changed the game, I think, in New Zealand from a kicking game to big athletic forwards being able to handle the ball. Mm-hmm. And, mm. and you still see that today. So hugely influential figure in the game here and, and became a, a really close mate. So playing under him was um, was a highlight. And actually, my last game under him was um, not for the All Blacks, but it was for a World 15 at the IRB Centenary in 1986, where he and, and Templeton, the Australian coach, and um, Jacques Ferroux coached a world team. We played the Lions and then we played a Southern Hemisphere versus Northern Hemisphere game that year. Um, so, yeah, he, he, he was a great influence for me, um, both as a coach, but also latterly as an All Black selector when when I was um, helping coach the All Blacks. Yeah, I think, you know, touching on, you know, you're talking about rugby in the 60s and I, I recently went through a phase of watching a lot of Wallabies games in the 80s because uh, we're, we're, we're short of wins uh, these days. So I, I thought I'd go back into the into the uh, the time capsule. But I think there's a lot to be learnt there for coaches to go back to those old games and just see how like, the game was dramatically different. But just offloading alone, I think there's a, a load to be learnt there for, for coaches by, by looking at those old matches. Yeah, 100%. They, um, uh, it's become very combative, hasn't it, the game? Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, we've, we're going to have to look at some law changes shortly, not just from a safety point of view, but from a continuity and, and attacking yeah. point of view. Yeah, I agree. The principles yeah. of play, we, we, we've got to hold those uh, tight. And if, if uh, right. you know, we get away from that, it, 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 it's no longer rugby. Well, with that, that kind of grounding with some of the names you mentioned there, um, how were your first coaching experiences? What, what did you... What do, what do you reflect upon there and, you know, some of the good things, some of the things you learnt uh, in that process? Well, uh, I actually, um, I went to play in Italy in 1986. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the latter years of my All Black career, like I was never a great at the game and, and I knew I wasn't going to be a great at the game. I had a lot of um, test matches and I played for some great teams, but that was... That was my um, whole ambition was to to be part of great teams rather than um, be a great player. And I, I knew mm-hmm. I, I just had to be a cog in the teams. Um, my, what would you call him? My apprentice, I suppose, uh, in 84 and 85 in the All Blacks was a guy called Grant Fox. Yeah. And it soon became apparent to me that he was going, he was going to be a great of the game and it was time for me to move on. So um he he took over in '86 uh, with Frano Bodica, who was another um, great New Zealand five eight. So mm-hmm. um, I went to Italy, and I had um, I I played for a small team in Italy called Casale Sulcile, up between Treviso and, and Venice. Right, and I'd been um, talked into being the head coach as well as the foreign player. Yeah, had um, <laughs> I had said to them, yeah, I had said to them. <laughs> Look, I didn't, obviously I didn't speak any Italian and 
I didn't know anything about forward play. So I'd requested that I had someone who, you know, an assistant coach who could speak um, English and knew how to coach forwards. So we turned up mid-1986, met my new coach who um, not only didn't speak English, but hardly spoke Italian. He, he spoke <laughs> a, a local dialect. Love it. Uh, and he played on the wing for Italy. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a rocky start for someone who'd never coached a team in his life to then be player coach of a, of a first division team in Italy. Um, had to learn pretty quickly. Uh, and it really shaped my coaching career. Yeah, yeah, because, exactly. Because I'd come from a, from a more analytical background to, um, to a team that, that probably wasn't going to work. And I decided pretty. I, I, I decided through my time with the All Blacks in Canterbury that people will rise to a challenge if it's their challenge, but they weren't necessarily rise to other people's challenges. Yeah. Um, and as coach, I thought I needed to really empower the boys and make sure that they owned the business, they owned the team, and um, and that way I thought they would they would be inclined to put put way more into it. So it started the whole a whole um, philosophy, I suppose, of, of giving people account, uh, making people accountable and create some personal meaning with them. Uh, the second thing was, because I was learning the language, I was really determined to, to speak Italian to a high level because I wanted to, I wanted to coach in the, in the um, native language. And then I decided, I didn't really know what they knew about the game, so I decided to start asking questions and did it for two reasons. Firstly, it improved my Italian, yes. so I couldn't converse with them in Italian. But secondly, it was, it was letting me understand what they knew about the game. And so I started asking them what they did. Um, when, when, they, when they did that, what did you do? Um, what did you see to make you do that? And what would you do next time? And I, mm. and I got to understand the, the guys and what they knew. But more than that, I... I noticed that they were becoming way more self-aware and they were picking up things and, and retaining them much better than if I was, if I'd been telling them what to do. So today they call it query theory, but for me it was um, asking questions to, to get some descriptive answers. So I knew, I knew what they, what they understood and what they were going to do. Um, and the third thing was, and you probably, um, you, you mentioned Vilpreur before, mm. uh, that I was exposed to, a different methodology over there. So as I said, we were very analytical in New Zealand and all of a sudden um, I had opportunities to, to watch Viltreur. Um, a guy called Andre Bonomo was, was coaching Benetton mm -hmm. um, and he, um, those two were really influential on, on my development. So they had a way more global methodology of coaching yeah. than, than I'd been used to. Um, Today they call it game-based um, yeah. learning. Uh, and in New Zealand, our whole philosophy was teach the skills and then play the game. For mm. Pierre and Andre, it was play the game and the skills will come. And so it was a, it was a, a opposing philosophies, if you like. Um, but it gave me a real opportunity to, to marry the two types of coaching together and... Um, whilst nothing I did was really original, um, the combination of the two methodologies was, was sort of original mm. in rugby at the time. And that's the way I, 
I was exposed to coaching and the way I developed. Yeah. No, and I think, um, you know, that's that's late 80s, early 90s. That's pretty groundbreaking stuff. And it's 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 amazing that, you know, we still have, you know, coaches who are very drill-based and not games-based uh, in 2021. I, how, how would, like, so we're, we're, we're talking, you know, 30 years ago. How was that when you came back to New Zealand and you brought that methodology to your first practice in NZ? How'd that, how'd that go down? You can imagine how it went down. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, given that Grizz Wiley, um, that's some, you know, the, the name's there for a reason. The, the perception of, of great coaches was um, pretty gruff, demanding, instructive, uh, and how it's, it wasn't right or wrong. It was just how New Zealand had, had grown up and um, it was the norm. So for me coming back, particularly when I, when I went in, at a high, I started a high level with Crusaders in 1997. And by that stage, I'd, I'd sort of honed um, my three philosophies or methodologies. I'd honed them with Canterbury B. Um, I'd honed them at my club Belfast I was coaching Canterbury Sevens and New Zealand Sevens at the time. So I had a lot of opportunities to, um, to get better at what I was doing. But when I, when I joined Crusaders, it'd be fair to say that my questioning techniques uh, took a while to, <laughs> to take root. Um, and I, and I soon realised I was asking the wrong questions or I was asking the questions the wrong mm. way. So I was, I'd often ask, why did you do that? And of course, that created a justification from the player, and often mm. led to a wee bit of conflict. When when all I really meant was, um, what did you do, and uh, what did you see to do that? So I started asking what questions rather than why or how, uh, cool. and um, that was better at getting descriptive answers. And um, that's really what I was aiming for. So that was interesting. Uh, the first year. Um, Game-based learning was totally different for mm. the boys. So um, putting them into small, small opposed activities, changing the, the size of the field to, to um, achieve what I wanted to achieve. You know, I'd start with, with, a, with a field and sometimes I'd have the defence, you know, on the, on the outside, of the, outside of the grid. Mm. The back would be set up on the inside and um, I'd throw the ball to the attack and the defence have to come in and try and try and defend it. So um, the players soon learnt to, to run square or arc back in at the defenders coming in from the outside, mm -hmm. draw and pass, try and block a defender and try and score it wide. And then I'd swap it around and put the defenders in the grid and the attack outside the grid and the attack would have to come in. And of course the defence was already set, so they'd have to learn how to penetrate. So it was, it was learning the game conceptually through mm. those activities. And again, it took a while for it to, to bed down. So 97 was really a learning year um, for us together as a group, for me. And, you know, I had an assistant coach. Well, he was a co-coach really. And Peter Sloan, who was more experienced than me and older than mm. me, yet, was named my assistant. And um, so we were learning together um, and we were, marrying two different types of techniques and 
and I sort of discovered that teaching, teaching or communication is a, is a sliding scale. You can't always be one or the other. Lynn Kidman would, she would um, argue that with me, but sometimes instru- you know, instruction does have a place in coaching yeah. and sometimes you've just got to um, ensure that, that biomechanical, biomechanically this is the right technique. So we need to, we need to teach that. Um, but as I say, it's a sliding scale and um, I tend more towards the questioning side mm-hmm. and empowerment, but um, there's a place for both. Yeah. And I think that also calls on like having a diverse group of coaches as well. Like if you're the questioning type, you might want someone who's a, who's a bit more direct and you can, you can work together as a team in, in that yeah. way. Yeah. Well, you mentioned yeah, Lynn well, Kidman. Oh, sorry, go. Yeah. Yep. I was just going to say um, the, uh, so Peter Sloan, who had, who'd been my assistant, he, at the end of, we won the tournament in 98. So we beat um, the Blues up at Eden Park, which was a surprise mm. to everyone, including us. Uh, the great Graham Henry was coaching an outstanding Blues team and we managed to go up there and win it. And Peter Sloan then went to the All Blacks as assistant coach to John Hart. So I needed a, I needed another assistant for 99. I'd coached, I'd played, a, um, Steve Hansen had played a couple of games for Canterbury with me in the early years. And then when I coached Canterbury B, he was he was my captain. He was centre for Canterbury B and he was captain. We got on particularly well. And I knew he had, A, he had a great mind for the game. He'd had, he'd had the education of a coach since a young boy with his dad, Des. Mm. So he knew coaching. Um, and he knew the game and he knew me. So um, I applied to to New Zealand rugby to get him as my assistant at Crusaders for 99. And it was the start of, or the continuation of a, of a long um, history between, between Steve and I. So we got on particularly well that year and we won, we won the championship again. Um, and both finals, funnily enough, away from home, which is oh. happens today. But in those days, in the early days of super rugby, it wasn't such a, such a stigma really to play mm. away from home. So, we went at Eden Park and then we beat um, the Highlanders down at Carisbrook. So they, they, they were great years and really, really formative years for me. I was, I was still pretty young, um, still reasonably green, I guess, but it had some early success. So um, it made it look like coaching was a breeze to me. I seem to find out that it wasn't. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Well, I think that was also a, a great time for Super Rugby too, that late 90s, early 2000s. I think... I think we got Super Rugby got got so big and you know covered the entire Southern Hemisphere, and then you you go back and you watch like I, I just recently watched the the heyday of the Brumbies, you know those two uh, finals they were in, and I was I was like this is just amazing rugby, and yeah. I I would watch this today. Um, yeah. So I think I think there's a lot to be said with with that and how big the game got and how it actually watered down uh, a really good. I hate using the word product, uh, but a really good setup uh, for, yeah. for rugby in Southern Hemisphere. Hugely competitive. Mm. Uh, the game back then, you know, there weren't the blowouts or not many blowouts yeah. uh, today. Great coaches, you know. Um, great Australian teams were actually okay as well. Yeah. Well, they had great things <laughs> with the game, didn't they? That, yeah, that, 100%. Um, you know, the AIS progress, coaching programs mm. were in place, yep. huge government funding. Agree. Had, had the McQueens and um, and Coco Barry Honans and um, young Eddie Jones coming through, 
Mm. Um, hugely, hugely competitive and, yeah. and great footy. With, with Crusaders, um, because of the team had got last in 96 and it, it was a hell of a challenge. It, it was a new team. Well, we were all new teams. Um, but there were particular challenges in that Crusader region at the time. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of acceptance of Aucklanders playing for a red and black team. And, wow. and, and we had um, you know, Nelson Bays, Marlborough, West Coast, South Canterbury, Mid Canterbury were now all part of the Crusaders and it wasn't Canterbury anymore. So there were some massive, massive challenges um, in the game back in those days. And of course, with my different um, methodologies of coaching, uh, they weren't hugely accepted by the public, I didn't think, at those times. Uh, a mm. success later um, sort of bettered them in as, as um, genuine genuine ways to coach. But um, back then, yeah, I was known as a mad professor, I think. Um, <laughs> and the way we played, uh, so we didn't have a very strong, like, we, we had a great pack, don't get me wrong, a, a great group mm. of forwards. But we weren't very um, set-piece oriented. So right. we put a lot of emphasis on on defence and counterattack, and mm. um, we were a hugely attacking team. Probably played differently to a lot of the other teams. Whilst everyone yeah. were, everyone was an attacking team in those days, um, but we tended to to attack off different platforms, and it, it was hugely successful for that for that group of players. Yeah, great. Well, you you mentioned earlier there, Lynn Kidman and. You know, in terms of coaching pedagogy, she's a, she's an absolute giant. Uh, in when when you talk about things like teaching games for understanding, um, wh- what what was the connection there with you and and Lynn Kidman, and and how has that kind of developed your overall coaching philosophy in in how you you approach the game? I was introduced to Lynn by David Hadfield, who's one of our foremost um, sports psychs in New Zealand, right. and. Um, Gilbert and Oka were every team I've been in, he's been part of the coaching staff. David Hadfield, um, big influence through New Zealand rugby. Latterly, um, David Gilbraith, similarly. So I've been lucky to be exposed to three of the great sports sites involved in rugby, I would say. Um, so David Hadfield introduced me to Lynn. Um, Lynn initially, I think, wanted to check that what I was saying was, um, was true. <laughs> well, she came along to a lot of trainings, um, observed. Uh, it, it was great for me. It forced me to live live what I was saying. Yeah. Uh, because sometimes you can you can slip away from from your philosophy, you know, under mm. pressure. Um, having her there was great. I learned a lot from her. She, uh, as you know, um, she's she's way down the sliding scale. Towards, yeah. Um, games for understanding um, and player empowerment. So mm-hmm. um, she was a huge influence on me, really. Just having her there and um, making sure that I was being true to to what I believed in, and she, she helped me with that. Uh, we, I'd I'd already been coaching Crusaders for I met her, so um, things like theming, creating personal meaning, um, developing a, a vision. A vision-driven, values-based campaign, mm. all stuff that Gilbert and I and Pete Sloan had experimented with. And we couldn't find a lot of information around the world around that about creating personal meaning or um, 
or a legacy or an identity with your sports team. And so we, we did some stuff that was different, I think, to what anyone else was doing and pretty confronting at the time because mm. um, I wasn't quite sure it was going to work. It can look pretty corny, that stuff, if it's if you don't get by. And, but luckily, uh, it was fresh and it was meaningful and and we did get by. And, and it's um, it's now commonplace in the game. Oh, it's, yeah, it stood the test of time. Yeah, back in the mid-90s. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, so that's how I met Lynn and um, had a long relationship with her. And, and yeah, she's kept me, kept me honest many times. Yeah, I think uh, her her book, um, Coaching Decision Makers, I read that 15 years ago and I just realized I was doing everything wrong uh, and and needed to uh, have, a, have a good hard look at my own coaching philosophy. So I, I mentioned that book all the time on, on the podcast and it's, it's amazing. Um, and, you know, the athlete-centered approach and, and the games-based approach and the, the player-centered uh, leadership approach, it's, 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 a, it's a fabulous book. Isn't it great though, Andy, that you you read something, realised you you could make some changes, and then mm. went out of your comfort zone to make them, and that's that's a growth mindset, and that that to me is is coaching and playing, yeah. and you know you you never finish learning in this game. Mm. Like I'm 64, I have my gold card next year, learning all the time. Yeah, you share an idea, you get five back, so um, you know it just never stops. Yeah, no, I agree. And it's a, it's a great philosophy. And I think, you know, well, speaking of learning, like looking at um, the the Trans-Tasman competition, we spoke a little bit about it um, before the interview. What, what were your observations? What did you learn from that, you know, brand new competition and two, two different styles of play uh, between two countries? What, like with your coach's eye looking at that, what, what did you get from that? Um. Yeah, I think the, the game, you know, you've t- talked about game back in the 80s and 90s. The game's evolved hugely, not always for the better. Mm. Um, my concerns for the game, there are there seem to be very few people who are prepared to not follow the herd. You know, um, as the game's gone professional and, and it became your job, um, there was way less... A tendency for coaches to put the head up above the parapet because it gets yeah. cut off. And yeah. my day didn't really matter in the, those early days of coaching because it wasn't professional. We were amateurs who were doing what we loved doing and it didn't matter that they did stuff differently. It didn't matter if they didn't want you back next year because you had your day job. Um, so things have changed. I felt in, in um, both competitions, you know, if you look at the, the data around attack, most attacks from phase plays now have only two passes in them. And that's yeah. counting halfback pass. Yeah. So most teams essentially do the same and that they mm. set up a pot of forwards that'll probably go to the second forward, the, the forwards outside and inside, clean that ruck. Um, and so that's only a one pass. It's only a one pass attack. Mm. Um, so I think the average is probably two passes, which um, which isn't a hell of a, an exciting when everyone's doing the same thing. So that's that's the first that's the first thing I would say that um, that in general a lot of teams are playing the same. What so some things uh, some things that I liked 
there were some things that I don't like, firstly, about the game. Repetitive resets of scrums. I don't it was like. brutal. It was brutal. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think there needs to be a coaching movement away from scrums. Oh, I totally penalties, agree. Yep. Penalties, um, to the, the whole idea of the game when it when it's, you know, in the early days of, of, of rugby school in England, um, it was a game of grouping and spreading. Mm. And to me, when you've got a scrum, you've got a grouped um, set piece where you've got 16 players in a small huddle. That's time to, to be really positive, get clean ball, yep. and then use it in an attacking way. Yep. Instead, today, there's a lot of playing for a penalty, um, kicking that to touch, maybe driving for yep. another penalty from the from the line-out. Um, you know, and there's just continual resets and continual yep. malls that are going down. No one understands the, the laws in a mall anymore. Um, so I think those are some areas of the game that have become predictable and, and um, tiresome, I, I think. Um, box kicks... I, I'm not a fan of box kicks. In fact, <laughs> with my team Kobe in Japan, I banned them from nine. Nice. <laughs> like it. Yeah, at best, they're 50-50. Yeah. At worst, they're, they're a 10-90. Yeah. Um, and to me, they reflect fear. They reflect coaches that aren't prepared to... Yep, I agree. ...have a crack and they, they want to throw the ball up and hope that they get a positive result. So um, that's a generalisation, but... Those are some things that I don't like. What I, what I have liked from what I've seen, um, I've liked the Highlanders in that they play slightly differently to everyone else, so the ball carriers will, will tend to step mm -hmm. um, to, to offset a defender. Um, the, the support players, the first thing the, the support players do in the Highlanders is they support the ball carrier for an offload. That's Whereas, classic um, Vilperot. Yeah, exactly. And, mm. and uh, whereas a lot of other um, teams, those support players are just there to clean, clean yep. the ruck. Um, Highlanders' first option, looks to me anyway, is their first option mm. is to, to take the offload and keep the game going. Um, they will adjust and clean if that pass doesn't get made. So I like that. Uh, Crusaders clearly, I think, are a step ahead. So I like the way they spread the field and attack and they all come forward mm. and they line up in open doorways. So they're always attacking taking holes if a defend outside defender makes a mistake and comes in then they'll tip to that next hole and they're through and they've got really good training support so they're able to keep the ball alive um, all the time uh, particularly in counter-attacks so they're very effective so I think they're setting setting the platform for how the game could be played not all the time but but often um, I also like the way they learn from their plays so if you watch them in the first half so they'll make their, their plays that they plan to make. And they generally have three or four options off, off the plate. And they'll get through to halftime. They might be up sort of 13, 6 or something like that. And you'll see them accelerate in the second half. Yeah, yeah. A really good half. Understanding who's now unmarked in those plays or who's the least marked in those plays. Um, so they'll be the moves that they play after half time. They'll go to right. the least defended areas, areas, and often it, it results in a in a quick escalation of the score. Goes up really quickly. 
simply because they're now making the right plays based on their learning. So I, I really enjoy that about them. So there are, there are things in, I think, in um, Super Rugby that you can take off every team, but there are a couple of things that stand mm. out. For me. I like the way um, a couple of the coaches, Brad Thorne in particular up at Reds, has created an environment that gets the best out of his players. Yeah. They, they're not consistent yet and they yeah they um, play a reasonably tight game but they play for each other a bit like the Brumbies a bit like the Force something I really enjoyed with those teams they really play for each other yeah and whilst the game was slightly behind that I think of the New Zealand boys um, I think they gave everything and uh, they showed that with continued um, games against opposition like the New Zealand teams, I think they're going to get better pretty quickly because yeah. they, they seem to have the culture and the environment to do that. Yeah, and that can't be underestimated. And that's a really cool point too. What you said about the the Crusaders, like that, that shows uh, a really efficient use of the halftime break from the coaches and players on on what they're doing in that you know 10, 12 minutes that they get to chat. Um, they're using, they're getting every drop out of that. Yeah, and you can see, you can see on the field, um, Moonga, the the ten, um, getting really good feedback from the people around him, and then him having the the skill clearly, and the understanding to execute, execute mm. the play. Um, and we, you know, we're lucky in. New Zealand with some of the, the five eights, particularly here in yeah. are uh, world leading, I think at the moment, um, along with, a, with with a couple of the Northern Hemisphere guys, but mm. you know, they're outstanding to watch. Yeah. All right. You, you mentioned Cabelco Steelers there. What's uh, what's that ride been like? A bit rocky in the the last year, but uh, you know, with with COVID and everything. Yeah. But yeah. but how how that how that role come about, and and what's 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 the coaching experience like there and in Japan, and you know what who, who have you got around you that's doing some really cool things uh, on the field? Um, I finished with the All Blacks at the end of um, two seventeen. Mm-hmm. I actually had, um, I'd been diagnosed with prostate cancer and I, I knew I had to get the operation done at the end of the year. So I finished finished with the All Blacks after the um, rugby championship, didn't go on tour, um, got my operation done and was talking to Kobe about some sort of role. Um, it was, initially it was going to be more uh, um sort of a spot coach mentoring mm-hmm. type role. Um, but at the end of 2017, um, so I had recruited some coaches that I had a lot of faith in. My head coach, Dave Dillon, um, who I'd worked with, he was a, he was a player development manager actually at Chiefs when I was there. Had a lot of time for him and felt that he had huge potential as a head coach. Um, Steve Cumberland, who had been a forward coach at Highlanders for a few years when I was with the All Blacks. I got to know him well. I had a lot of time for him. Nick Holton, who had played for Chiefs years before and had a long history in, in Japan, particularly with Toshiba and had been successful. Brought him into, into um, a position. And Scott Hansen, who's the attack coach at the moment for Crusaders, he was already there and so we retained him. Um, so I put 
put a group of coaches together, including a couple of um, Japanese intern coaches, um, found that they had really good staff there, um, but the team hadn't been successful for um, a lot of years since 2002, I think, was the last time we had success. So I did a bit of research around the clubs. Uh, it was pretty consistent that most people thought uh, Kobe had talent, but they had a soft underbelly. They had some pretty flash cars in the, in the car park, but um, didn't last more than 20 minutes on the field. And so it seemed to me just being a spot coach or a coaching mentor wasn't going to cut the mustard. And if I wanted to make a difference, I had to, had to really get involved at a high level. So, so that's, that's what we did. Um, instead of spending eight weeks a year there, I was spending like 218, 219, 220. I was there about 20 weeks, just over 20 right. weeks, I think. And thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, the, the, the key agreement I got from Kobe at the start was I, I had, when I was a kid in Pataru, um, something that really changed my vision of the game was the, it was 1968 All Japan Tour to New Zealand. And, you know, you imagine a little country kid playing rugby in a, in a small area. Um, you all play the same way and you, you see rugby the same way. And so this All Japan team came out and Dad took me to see the Bay of Plenty game. And I'd never seen anything like it. Great. So they didn't, they didn't jump in the line out. They, they would more likely to drop down to their knees and throw the ball at their knees and then they'd pass it back to the halfback and then they'd play. They, awesome. just play. they just play. And yeah. they had this little winger, Demi, Demi Sakata on the wing, little fella, scored five tries against Bay of Plenty. Five That's tries awesome. on the wing. I'd never seen anything like it. And they beat Bay of Plenty. And then, and of course, 67, 68, 69 were unbeaten years for the All Blacks, New Zealand rugby. Mm. So it was... It was just huge, you know, we were hugely on a on a wave of, of brilliant rugby. And so all Japan played the junior All Blacks who who were hell of a strong, you know, they were they were the next people in line, mm. next players in line for the All Blacks. And Demi Sakata scored four tries against the junior All Blacks and all Japan beat the junior All Blacks. <laughs> and it was just a amazing it was just everything was about movement and um, if they kicked they only kicked positively to to their own players or on the ground to make it bounce and they, they, they were there to create mayhem. And so the agreement yeah. I had with Kobe, I explained what I'd seen from Japan and I'd always had this vision of being able to go to a team and replicating what I saw that day. So that was the agreement I had. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, uh, and I had coaches who were prepared to, to come along for the ride. And so yeah. we, yeah, we developed a hugely attacking game um, we had to. We've got really good S and C trainers because we had to get to a to play the yeah. game um, that we wanted to play. We had to get to a a level of fitness that no one else could live with. And so that's what we did. Um, and we went through the first year unbeaten. We played Suntory in the final up in Tokyo at their home ground, actually, and beat them fifty five five. Amazing. And it was one of the most exhilarating performances I've ever been involved in That's fantastic. And come from this vision of, of all Japan. And so one of the things I was really adamant on that I was going to ban box kicks. <laughs> you can imagine. Doesn't work. It doesn't you know, work for you. The team had been based on, on driving, setting up penalties, kick, touch, 
box kick, um, you know, throw it up like a grenade and see what happens. And uh, so when I banned them, there was and, and brought in a new kicking philosophy. philosophy. Um, it was hard work, even though I had um, or we had Daniel Carter and Andy Ellis there, two of the best players I've ever coached mm. and two of the smartest. It still took a while to to get out of the um, the conservative kicking strategy into into an attacking one. But anyway, um, in that final against Suntory, I think we kicked seven times. We scored off a couple of them. Um, and the only try that Suntory got was from a box kick that we did by mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Point proven right there. Yeah, and uh, it created a bit of chaos and the ball changed hands a couple of times and Suntory ended up scoring. But anyway, uh, what it did at Kobe was it, I think it rejuvenated the game, mm. um, created a lot of pride for the company. Um, my coaches were outstanding at, um, at delivering it. We had a great year the following year as well. We beat Kubota 43-7, I think, in the final after having played Suntory in the semi-final in 2019. 220 um, was again another outstanding year, but they called the competition off halfway mm. through, so it never completed. So this year we were going for a um, for a three-peat, three championships in a row. I don't know if you've ever been involved in doing that, but it's hell of a heart. I have. I lost it in the third. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. it's tough. Yeah. yeah, I was talking to a pl- guy I played with yesterday about it. It's a it's a difficult thing. Tough things change. Um, you know, in those first couple of years, everyone's hands up. Yeah, you know, wanting to do your gratitude stuff around the community and mm. um, help each other and um, work above and beyond what anyone else prepared to do. Um, but slowly and surely, they're always. Um, it sort of comes, it sneaks through, but becomes more a sort of handout mm. yeah. attitude, unknowingly, unwittingly by people. I'm not just talking about players here, but everyone. Um, but just wanting a bit more for doing a bit less. Um, Pat Riley talks about in his, his great book, The Winner Within, and, and it's true. And not only is it true, it's very difficult to halt Mm. I've been involved a few times um, with it, and still haven't got the answer. Still haven't, still haven't really um, got on top of it. The only, the only three peat I've been uh, involved with that was successful was Crusaders. So when we won in '98 and '99, mm. um, but I went to, I became All Black coach in 2000, and Robbie Deans, who had been my manager. Yeah, Crusaders took over as Crusaders coach and beat the Brumbies yep. in in Canberra for our three-peat, for our third win. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't there. I wasn't involved. And when I look back now, I think that was a positive. I'm yep. pretty sure if I've been involved, yeah. we won it. And yeah, that's a good I'm point. That you need change. You need fresh ideas. You don't need to change the bone-deep stuff. What you need to do is experiment around the fringes a bit more. And you tend not to do that, I think. You tend to mm. think, let's just go back to the fundamentals of what got us here and let's just keep working on those. But as I say, uh, I've tried it a, uh, two or three times and it hasn't worked. But maybe I can learn next time. 
<laughs> I think the, the, the other thing was, for me, it was a frustrating year because I never saw a game this year. We mm. got stuck, stuck back in New Zealand. Um, I had a, um, I had a health um, reason for not going back. Um, and so I, so we were trying to work on Zoom. Now, Zoom's a great platform, isn't it? But it's not mm. an effective way to, to coach yeah, or yeah. even to mentor, really. You know, you can send all the videos you like and all the drawings you like and have all the Zooms you like, but um, it's it's difficult if you're not there mm. to, help, to help the guys. And so, yeah, it wasn't wasn't the season we wanted. Um, we... We were unbeaten, like in four seasons, we were unbeaten. We'd had a couple of draws, but we were unbeaten. We mm. lost the playoff game against Kubota. And rightly so, we, we, we didn't play well and we, right. we didn't deserve the three-peat. So, Kobo going to have to start again. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's always next year. That's uh, that's the beauty of coaching, right? And, um, you know, when you when you are, this final question before I go with the final four questions that I always finish the pod with, when, when you're coaching full-on, uh, in those kind of times in Japan and with the All Blacks and those kind of things, how do you switch off? Like when you get that time to pull away from the games, a Sunday or a Monday, what what do you? How do you detach yourself from from the game and the experiences that you've just had? Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. Um, I think the best book I've ever read uh, in terms of leadership would be Stephen Covey's. Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. One of the key things I got from his book was around balance in your life. So, you know, you've you've got three or four areas to your life. So for me, it's always been myself, obviously. So making sure that I'm fit and well, um, my family and my work, rugby. Rugby was, was my work most of my life. Um, so how you balance those is really important and giving to each of those areas is, is really important. So I came from, I, I went from being a, a workaholic and I promised myself that when I started coaching that no one, no one in the world would outwork me. And I got to the stage where I was the first into work and I would just stay at night until I thought every other coach in the world would have gone home by now and then I'd yeah. go home. It wasn't, it wasn't a healthy way to do it. I had huge support from my wife and we had twin boys. And I was really lucky there, clearly, um, that I was able to do that. But it wasn't, wasn't the right way to do it. So um, once uh, I, read, I read Covey's book and then I was lucky enough to go to a conference that he ran in, in Wellington. And just outstanding, you know, it, it basically changed the way I operated. So now, and I teach this to... The staff and I teach it to the players. Oh, that's um, great. We have, to keep a, we have to keep a diary that every day you've got to put something in for your family, put something in for yourself, put something, and then you've got obviously got your schedule for the team. Um, but what you put in for your family, what you put in yourself, has got to be it's set in concrete, so you can't mm. just touch it because something comes up. And what I found was by the time I got to the end of the week, I could see I was quite famous at New Zealand Rugby Union actually because they could all see my diary. But I was famous for walking the dog at a strange time or taking my wife to the movies or taking the boys to rugby training or hockey or whatever they were playing. And it was always part of, part of my schedule. But it, it, it really helps and it, it, it gives you balance. And so for me, 
Um, my my balance away from rugby is just little things. I don't like I don't like going to golf or or doing stuff that takes you away for a whole day. I'd rather yeah. go f- walk the dog with my wife Trish or um, go and take a rugby ball out with my grandson or whatever. Do just do little things like that. that yeah. that's what I need. And you're selfish enough as the coach, I, I think, um, with all the time you spend. Yeah, I got to the stage with the All Blacks where we'd finish a test match. And when I was coaching defence and counter-attack, I would go back up to my room after a meal and a couple of drinks with the boys and I would code the counter-attack until about two in the morning. Go to sleep and then I'd get up and Sunday was dedicated to coding. I used to do a lot of my own coding rather than just leaving it up to Opta or, or leaving it up to our analysts. I like to do it myself because it gave me a better feeling for the game and, and for the performance and the data. So I'd do that the next day for the defence and then I'd bring it all together on the Sunday night and then we'd start again, you know. And, yeah. and so in camp you get very little very little downtime and when you do, you've got to use it wisely. And we had a group of us who'd go to the gym, have a coffee together, um, just little things like that. Yeah. No, it's great advice for coaches and I think it's something uh, we, we notoriously don't do well. So uh, coaches listening, we can get some great ideas there. All right, Wayne, well, we always end the show with the same final four questions. Uh, when you were back in your younger days playing, who who was one of the players uh, that, that you really uh, looked up to and thought, you know, that's, that's how I want to play rugby? Um, well, I had a couple... Um, Every Sunday when I was a little kid, um, Dad and I used to listen to LPs, yeah. 45s of yeah. rugby tours. Oh, wow. Amazing. Rugby tours. And <laughs> so I remember, yeah, so I followed 56 Springboks. I wasn't born until 57, but I was able to follow them through these records. Um, my favourite player back then from those tours was 59 Lions, uh, Tony O'Reilly. Right. The wing. He captured my imagination. Um, but then as I as I got a bit older and started watching the All Blacks, Ian Kirkpatrick was my favourite player. Yeah. He, he, he was a six, um, but he could play six, seven, eight. He could have played on the wing if you wanted him to. Mm. He was just an outstanding all-round player and man. And um, even today, uh, you know, I still revere him today. He's a good friend, but I still revere him. So he was, yeah, he was my um, idol, I suppose, the, the picture yeah. I had up on the wall. Great, great. And uh, second question, what about now? Who are some of the players around the world that you're, you're enjoying uh, watching as a fan? Well, I, I think um, Aaron Smith, to me, is the most influential player in the world. Yeah, agree. Not, not, not just as a, as a great passing, running, kicking halfback, um, but I think his influence on others in the team, he's, he's a hugely um, committed trainer. He plans his training well. It's... It's um, highly connected to his game. What he does, everything he does is to make his game better. And um, the way he talks to his team on the field uh, at training and, and during games, I think is outstanding, inspirational. So, yeah. so to me, he's someone I really enjoy watching. Um, I love watching Mawonga and Barrett. Um, clearly at the moment, uh, there's a contest going on for who's mm. going to start at 5-8. But in the All Blacks, there really, is, there really never is a contest. Um, yep. All Blacks, uh, we have a tradition of making each other better by helping each other at training. Mm. And if you look at um, guys like Kevin Mialamu and Andrew Hall coming through together, they, 
Yeah. You know, one played over 100 tests, one played over 80, but they made each other better every training run. And that's what Moana and Barrett do. So I really enjoy that. I like watching them play. Um, and someone else I, I really enjoy watching play is Sam Whitelock, simply because yep. he's won two World Cups, 211 and um, 215. And he keeps going like every game is a World Cup final. Mm. And I love that in him. And he's got a huge influence on the people around him. So that so those are the Kiwis that I love watching. Um, I've really enjoyed uh, Harlequins this year. Yeah, you know, and you talk great about, run. Um, not following the herd and being prepared to put your head up. People like um, Nick Evans, you know, who's the attack coach. Yeah, yeah, former flyer for them too. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And mm. um, great, great man, Nick Evans. Um, and so I've really enjoyed um, looking at watching Marcus Smith. You know who I think um, has a wee bit of Mwanga and Barrett about him. Um, he's he, he's prepared to take risks and he learns from the game. He makes passes that no one else would make because he's he knows that that's where the hole was last time. So yeah. I enjoy watching him and and Lewis Liner. I don't know if they call him Louis yeah. or Lewis. Yeah, actually. right. Um, I coached. I, I played against Michael obviously, and I coached him mm. at Benetton in, in Italy. Um, when John Kieran was playing for them, so they were right. two finals. So yeah, I follow him as well, and he's a beautiful player to watch. Yeah, there's something back. coming there. Yeah, yeah, awesome. All right, and third question: uh, What what about coaches? Who are some of the coaches uh, that you 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 look up to and respect, and that you that you learn from as well um, as a as a way of getting better yourself? Well, um, I've talked about you know other coaches already. One one guy I've got a lot of admiration for is Stuart Lancaster. Yep. So, um, you know, you've got to go through hard times as a coach. There's no doubt yep. about that. And, and I yep. had that in, in 2001 with the All Blacks where I was, um, you know, I probably wasn't quite ready for the All Blacks at the time. We'd missed out on winning a couple of, um, couple of Tri-Nations by the skin of our teeth. But both times, both years, were errors that I felt responsible for. Mm-hmm. And I paid the price for that um, because I I always hold myself accountable, no one else. And um, and that was looked at as a weakness, I think, by the New Zealand Rugby Union Board at the time. They felt I showed a weakness by showing some, um, not responsibility for what happened, but um, Possibly a lack of confidence. They felt I had a lack of confidence in what I was doing. I think, whereas right. what I was doing was questioning myself. Um, however, Stu had to go through the same stuff, and yep. what I saw from him was rather than going in his shell and and thinking, "Well, was me," he travelled the world. He came down here. He yep. um, he stayed one night with Trish and I. He travelled the world to learn, and he's got a huge growth mindset. I think he's a real example for coaches to look at mm-hmm. so what i mean by growth mindset is he's never he's never just been happy doing what everyone else does so he's always been prepared to make mistakes to try mm-hmm. different things um try different ways of doing things he's always tried to get better and um i really admire that in him and he's come back and he's proven people wrong you know he was vilified yeah. um after not winning the, or not even getting through um, to the fin- to the playoffs 
um, in the World Cup in 2015, and he he changed um, who he is, changed how he operates. He learnt and he's applied that with Leinster, and is a you know he, they're possibly the best best um, club team in the world now, Leinster. Yeah, yeah. Like a huge admiration for what he's done. Yeah, no, that's great. I agree. I had him on the podcast too, and uh, uh, totally agree. And it was a it was a good chat that one. Uh, all right, final question uh, before we wrap things up. Um, someone uh, without uh, Stuart Lancaster's profile and the other coaches you mentioned. Uh, someone who's in the grassroots doing really good things that you feel deserves some recognition. Yeah, there there are a lot of. It's just a bit unfair to name people. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of examples, I think, in um, Heartland Rugby and Grassroots Rugby in New Zealand at the moment who are working really hard at getting kids back into the game. We, we've got yeah. a bit of a phenomenon here where kids aren't necessarily playing rugby anymore or a lot of organised sports. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's a guy, um, Steve Milne, who had played... I remember seeing watching him as a player. He's, he's younger than me. He played for New Zealand Maoris. He went to Japan. Um, he actually played for Japan. So he came back to a place called Tipuki um, in the Bay of Plenty and decided to help their junior rugby at the club there. And they had very few kids coming along. Um, you know, it was on a downward spiral. So he he developed a concept of backyard rugby, which is the way I learned. Yeah. Awesome. Backyard rugby and bull rush, you know, and, um, and so he's he's brought that whole philosophy back, and he's taken the club from having about I don't know a handful of kids to having probably seventy kids now playing the game again. He's got oh, really legend. good ideas, and I think we need to take to New Zealand rugby on on the game at, at that level. Mm. And so he's just one example of many, but I thought he was a good example that um, people might know the name. Steve Milne, but there are others, you know, there's a club in Cambridge, Kautapu, run by a guy called Jake Moreland, who's older guy now, but he's a doyen of the club. They've got 740 kids. Wow. That's amazing. Kids. They don't all play rugby, but but the rugby club have branched out and they've got a hockey team, netball team, um, rugby teams. And so um, to me, uh, that's a modernisation of the of sport and and probably mm. what needs to happen with you know so many other things in life that rugby's often a fifth or sixth priority now instead of the number one priority yeah. it used to be yeah. when i was yeah. a kid no, i agree oh, and that's a great message for how to keep a community strong and together as well having having people like that uh doing that great work yeah. All right, Wayne. Well, it's been a it's been a pleasure having you on the on the podcast. Hundredth uh, show of of uh, I've wanted to get you on for a long time. So uh, thanks for thanks for uh, answering my repeated emails. And uh, it's been great chatting to you. Uh, I think it'll be a, a really well received uh, podcast, and I've had a great time. So thanks so much for for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, Andy. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Love sharing ideas, and um, you know, hopefully. People will see me as a as an ancient, as a 64-year-old coach, but um, it just shows you that learning never finishes. You know, you're yeah. always you're always finding something new out about your game. So um, that's my life. All right, perfect, awesome. Thanks, Wayne. 
for listening to the Rugby Coaches Corner podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review via iTunes and keep listening for the next episode. You can also follow us via Twitter at RugbyCoachesCNR or via the website therugbycoachescorner.com. Until next time, keep sharing ideas to make the game better.